When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking with Ethan Pippett of Standing Stone Kennels. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 207. All right, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode, everyone. We've got a good conversation coming up with Ethan Pippett of Standing Stone Kennels in just a moment. First, I want to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. We've got another giveaway winner to announce for the month of January. You'll remember, Patreon patrons of the show are those of you out there making voluntary contributions to the Birdshot Podcast that in turn make you eligible for these Patreon monthly giveaways, exclusive discounts, for Upland Institute, Gumleaf USA at the moment. We get everybody set up with some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers, and you'll get some bonus content from time to time as well. As I mentioned, this month's winner of the giveaway is Chuck F., Patreon patron of the Birdshot Podcast. I will be sending a one-year subscription to Onyx Elite to Chuck this week. And if you want to be eligible for all those things I mentioned and next month's giveaway, you can check it out and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, don't forget, you can always save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription using the promo code BSP20. That'll save you 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt. And speaking of Onyx Hunt, you've heard me mention the last couple of weeks, I will be at Pheasant Fest in Minneapolis, Minnesota in a couple of weeks. So will Onyx Hunt. And I wanted to make listeners of the Birdshot Podcast aware of an event that Onyx Hunt is hosting on the Friday night of Pheasant Fest, which happens to be February 17th. It is an after party of sorts. The Pheasant Fest show floor will, of course, be open Friday afternoon 
There will be an Upland Rally following that, hosted by Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever. And after the Friday night rally slash banquet starts the Onyx Hunt Party, a.k.a. the 40X Party. You're probably wondering what the hell is the 40X Party. Well, I'm going to tell you about it. For every single dollar donated toward Pheasants Forever's habitat projects in Minnesota, Pheasants Forever is able to match those donations 40 times thanks to the PF chapters and partners in conservation. The result stretches every contribution into more quality habitat and more public access for all. The folks at Onyx Hunt want to help spread the message and, most importantly, celebrate everything Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has done to ensure that we'll have healthy grasslands and birds for future generations. So, kudos to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and kudos to Onyx Hunt for hosting this party again at 9 p.m., Friday of Pheasant Fest, February 17th. It's open to the public. Beer will be provided by Lining Kugels. There's going to be a live band from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Late night, party with Onyx. And there will be an opportunity to win over $25,000 in prizes from 20 great brands and partners. And last but certainly not least, for every person that attends the party and puts a pin in the favorite state map, Onyx Hunt will donate $40 to Pheasants Forever. And with that 40X match, you'll remember, that $40 turns into $1,600 of habitat improvement. So think about that just by attending the Onyx 40X party, Friday night at Pheasant Fest, sticking a pin in the map, you could potentially have up to $1,600 of habitat impact in Minnesota through the donation from Onyx, and of course, the team and the effort at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Pretty cool idea, a win-win situation. It's going to be a good time Friday night, hanging out and celebrating with Onyx Hunt and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I will be there. I hope to see some familiar faces there and just wanted to mention it here for those of you planning to attend Pheasant Fest. And also Pheasant Fest related, most of the show, I will be there hanging out in the Upland Gun Company booth. Looking forward to interacting with everyone there. We'll have Dell Whitman in the booth answering shotgun and gun fitting questions and there'll be no shortage of things to do and things to see at pheasant fest so looking forward to it hope to see you there later this month coming up in just a couple weeks all right don't forget to leave a rating review subscribe follow the show little things anybody can do just take a moment and help to support the birdshot podcast as well and with that said i think we'll move into our conversation today with Ethan Pippett of Standing Stone Kennels. Caught up with Ethan earlier this week. Check in on his hunting season a little bit. Learned about how he got into bird hunting and bird dogs and all of the things that Standing Stone Kennels has going on today, which I imagine many of you out there have heard of them. If not, you want to check out standingstonekennels.com, their YouTube channel, the supply store. They've got a lot of cool things going on, some really great resources for those of us out there learning how to train and develop bird dogs, and we're going to hear all about it from Ethan today. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast of Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan Pippin. All right, man. Well, welcome to the Birdshot podcast, Ethan Pippin. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. It's uh, I think it's Tuesday. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think it is too. We'll uh, let's check our calendars when we're done recording, but we'll go with it for now. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, you getting busy for ready for Pheasant Fest? 
Yeah, we are. It's uh, it's always a fun show. It's exciting to see and meet people there and, and kind of see some of the new things that are coming out. I, I enjoy going. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, that's kind of the big thing on my calendar at this point and just have a lot of, a lot of things working towards that. So it's keeping me plenty busy, but I am curious. Now I am, we're staying warm here. The dogs and I are warm up here in the North country. We're covered in snow and getting some actual cold temperatures this week. It's been pretty warm lately. You're in Kansas, right? Yeah, we are just uh, northwest of Wichita. Kind of put it in perspective for people. South central part of the state. Okay, okay. Now, talk to me about hunting season. Are we? Are we close? It's January thirty first today when when Ethan and I are talking. So, are we done now, or what's the deal? Uh, we're we're done. I uh, I have hunted a lot this year. I love doing it, but it's it's kind of the time that I move into spring testing prep. Um, okay. and take a, a small amount of a breather. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been lots of travel and, and lots of running dogs, which has been fun, but, uh, we're kind of the tail end of hunting season here. We do a few shows in February, but for the most part, stay around home and I start prepping dogs because hunt test season for us begins in March. So yeah. I need dogs you know, kind of prepped and ready to roll. And then we start traveling again. Yeah. Where else are you going to be just in case anybody out there listening is going to be at some of the, any other shows other than Pheasant Fest that you know you'll be at? Um, no, I know that there is an event that is education based for Yukonuba that we'll be traveling to, but that's in March. So I think Pheasant okay. Fest is the only one we're going to in February. Okay, cool. Well, I want, I want to hear a little bit about your hunting season. And now I see you got dogs, we're guiding, we're hunting, we're doing all kinds of stuff, but do you, uh, do you get plenty of time to, to just get out in the field with just you and the dogs in the fall and, and chase birds? Um, d- define just me and the dogs, <laughs> I guess would be the, the real question. Um, early season is when I take the most time for myself. Okay. Uh, it's typically the preparation of young dogs basically to to be put to work later in the season so i take a good portion of our young dogs uh grouse hunting and we did that in excuse me we did that in september um had the opportunity to travel to south dakota and also hunted north dakota chasing attempting to chase hunts this year um (laughs) and failed miserably at that but uh had had a really good time i got to take two trips to go grouse hunting and then um uh, rolled right into south dakota pheasant season which yeah. is when we start guiding okay so. okay gotcha um all right i gotta i gotta clarify one thing and that is when ethan says grouse hunting which is absolutely <laughs> correct you're talking sharp tail grouse and i of course have this proclivity to say grouse hunting i mean roughed grouse and everybody on the podcast will know that and i think that's it's kind of a widely used thing people just say grouse hunting but i uh i appreciate that you're you're talking about a a different kind of grouse hunting which i too have uh come to enjoy over the past few years and so it's it's still grouse hunting i love it all but talk to me about the the hun hunting in north dakota this is a that's a topic of interest to me the listeners will know i've i've kind of sort of chased them but i'm i'm basically grouse hunting as you were and hoping to get into huns, but I haven't really changed my techniques and strategies much to try to get into more huns. But what, what was that like for you and the dogs this year? 
Well, uh, we failed miserably. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. It was uh, it was an absolutely fantastic trip. Beautiful country. Um, I love seeing different parts of the world. Every time I go, it's like, wow, this is really cool because yeah. it's new and different. And but we tried to read and watch and learn, my buddies and I. And basically, we came up with after leaving what we learned was that. Uh, Hungarian partridge are very much like Kansas quail in where they hang out and what they do and kind of how to hunt them. Um, abandoned farmsteads, field edges, fence rows, things like that is where we should have spent more time looking and we didn't. Gotcha. So, yeah. Were you pretty much cruising the grass and were you getting into sharp tails while you were hun hunting? We did get into a few, yep. And I had kind of heard that they would be similar or be, or could be found similarly to pheasant country, which may have just been me misunderstanding or misinformation. But, you know, uh, grained field edges were what were described. And the country that I ended up being in, we found lots of pheasants. And okay. they weren't in season, so we did a lot of pheasant watching, which was cool. <laughs> yeah. Um good places to come back to, you know, yeah. but it was, we then kind of switched gears and went into what I would have felt would have been more prairie grouse country. And then we had some fields that the guys said, yeah, we have, um, sharp tail here. We have pheasants here and we have Hungarian partridge. And, um, you could see the differences in the terrain of, you kind of had some hillier short grass prairie type stuff that moved into, lower bottoms like uh that had cattails and the edge yep. of the pond and then in between that there was grain planted right so it was um it seemed like uh, the perfect fit but then we just i mean we just still never came across an actual hunt until the day we left the guy that we were out there was like hey i found them they're right they're right over <laughs> here you know yeah. so it's it's just part of hunting yeah Right. Yeah. Well, first, first time really going after them, you know, there's a bit of a bit, of, bit of a learning curve, like everything, which I know, you know, but yeah, that's interesting. That sounds pretty similar to what, to my experiences out there. And I've been doing it for a few years now. And the differences in that you, know, you go out there and it's generally flat. I mean, you get some hills and some rolling terrain and stuff, but generally flat and you could very easily, I feel like kind of glaze over and kind of, oh, everything looks the same. You know, there's a little bit of grass, a little bit of crop. There's a pond over here. So the the differences in the breaks and the cover are subtle, but I think once you get an eye for it, like anything else, it's things start to stand out and you can start to put that puzzle together. So I'm slowly getting there, I think. But again, I, like I said, I I just really, and I think I said on the last episode, I just really enjoy strolling through that big open prairie grass and getting into sharp tails. I just love that watching the dogs run and I haven't really transitioned into working some of those edges and some more of those objectives where I think, and I will say, I think I could get into a few more hunts. Yeah. And I'm with you to an extent in that, that it's, it's like you have to leave what I know in order to look for something new. And sometimes as, as much as I get the opportunity to spend in the field, my individual time is limited. Yeah. So I get a little uh, selfish, if you will, in myself. Like I'd rather just go here where I'm, I'm almost confident that I'm going to come across birds versus the exploration. And, um, you know, that comes from uh, 
just a true understanding of the, the limitations of what I do have. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's another good point too. If you you've got again only so much time, and there's a there's a balancing act of kind of doing your comfort zone and and just doing what you love, what you know you're going to do, and then and then stepping out of that comfort zone to kind of expand and try something new. There's a there's a healthy balance in there somewhere. I suppose we're always struggling to find it, right? Absolutely. Well, this year specifically, I. Um would describe it as I'm, I'm now mad at the Hungarian partridge. So there will be no <laughs> balance. It will be targeted and I will figure this out. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of what folks say about Chucker. You know, the first, first hunt is, is just to see what it's all about. And then the, then it's revenge after that or something like that. <laughs> so Ethan's after the Huns this year. <laughs> yes, that sounds accurate. <laughs> So then, yeah, South Dakota pheasant. Well, all right, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I, I got to know where bird dogs and bird hunting started for Ethan. What's the, take me back, where, where did this come into your life and how did you get to, to this point where it's it's seemingly all bird dogs at this point? Yeah, uh, man, it's probably a little bit different story. Started similar to some and then kind of took a different path. Yeah. You know, I didn't grow up in, in bird dogs, bird hunting, or really hunting in general. Um, my family, my, my immediate family, my parents don't hunt at all. And I did have an uncle and a grandpa on that side that hunted some, but they were far enough away that we never got the opportunity to really make it out there. Okay. So growing up, I had this dream as a, as a young kid that I would make a living hunting and fishing. And that was what I strive for. You know, my parents are very supportive. They're like, yeah, you can do anything you want to. Right. So um, uh, that progressed into not seemingly being an option. And, um, I moved kind of in the direction of computer based work. And okay. as a little kid though, I got the opportunity to go with a buddy and he had a little, it was a little black lab puppy and that little black lab puppy, they were taking it out to flush quail. I was like, well, this is really cool. I'm talking young. I might have been 10, okay. something like that. So I got one experience with kind of a makeshift game farm set up for this young black lab puppy. And I was like, well, that's kind of neat. And then got the opportunity to go with a family friend, pheasant hunting. And this is when we lived in Iowa, which at that point in okay. time, I didn't, I didn't realize how good the numbers were. If you go back and this look like at old statistics early 2000s late 90s time time frame uh yeah this will age me 100 percent, right so <laughs> it would have been um 2003 okay i believe okay yeah and i shot my first pheasant now we as a family did have a hobby that's a little out there but it's um have you probably heard of civil war reenactments oh yeah absolutely yeah i've never participated but i'm definitely familiar <laughs> Okay, so Civil War, um, you you dress up in that time period. We actually moved into the like pre eighteen forties, is how it's described. So more the fur trade, mountain man era. Oh, okay. So now you got my attention. Yeah. So <laughs> that portion, very very cool. You can take it to any level you want, all the way down to one hundred percent primitive, or the way that we did it was like. I don't know. I would say probably more than fifty fifty in the primitive category. Everything on the outside looks 100% primitive. There's no 
anything from present day stuff or it's recreated items, for example, tables and chairs and stuff that, that fit the time period. Everything inside of our tents, which are wall tents or canvas tents yeah. that would be time period incorrect, that stuff would be where we'd have a cooler, you know, and okay, uh, okay. a duffel bag where our clothes were that we brought were in or sometimes just trunks and whatever. But the um, in that we compete. So traditionally speaking, a rendezvous is what it's called, is okay. where the yeah. fur traders came and they they met at a fort or whatever. These mountain men are coming down, and it's the first time they've seen people in a long period of time. So it's a big party, and there's competitions, and there's you know just uh, camaraderie and and trading, and all of these things happen. So they as family friendly as as you can um, try and make it because it's definitely a family activity of today. Right. Um, you have competitions that are with muzzleloaders and tomahawks and throwing knives and. So we play those games as well as you just move into this valley or this field or area with upwards of three to 500 camps. Wow. And you're talking a 1,500 people in some of the big ones. And they just make this small city in on this on private ground and pretend like we're, you know, in the, yeah. the like, 1840s. <laughs> is this like, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar. We've got... You know, I've never gone to it, but you've got my interest now. Like we have a, there's a Lester River rendezvous here in Duluth yeah. that is, I, there's, you know, I can imagine there, yeah, there are plenty of them around and, and a little bit uh-huh. of that culture here and pretty similar. What's the time period? Is this for like a weekend, a week or what, what do you recall about that? All across the board. So you could do a, a two or a three day one okay. or the ones that we typically went to once a summer were a bigger regional one that moved around to different states and it was seven days long. Wow, that's interesting. So you're spending, yeah, you spend seven days living out of a tent, cooking over a campfire. Full immersion. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So um, long story, circle back here, I only had muzzle-loading guns. So I had a muzzle-loader, 12-gauge, double-barrel shotgun. (laughs) And I shot my first pheasant. Uh, over this guy's uh, short hair is what it was. And the bird gets up and I pull up and I shoot and I, like clears the smoke. Uh, <laughs> I have to wait for the smoke to clear. No way. And, <laughs> yes. And then I look and I'm like, oh, I think I hit it. Maybe. I don't know. So we go over there and find and I, I shot my first pheasant. So that's crazy. Um, I, at that point in time, was hooked. I was like, I want to get a bird daughter. I want to do this. And my parents are like, yeah, buddy, as soon as you move out, you can do anything you want. <laughs> and so I graduated high school and moved out the next week and went to follow a lady. That's who's a cat, my current wife <laughs> and only wife. Yeah. And her family hunted and fished and deer okay. hunted and bird hunted and did everything. So, um, they didn't have any dogs, but she and I decided we wanted to do that. We got our first bird dog, and we often refer to her as Crazy Sammy. Anybody's ever listened to any of our stuff, if we're talking about Crazy Sammy, that was our first short hair, and she fit that name perfectly. So. Yeah. Oh, that's a cool. That's a, that's a cool story, man. Uh, you definitely, again, yeah, maybe not the uh, the easy route where you just were sort of walked right into hunting, but definitely exposure to, you know, the the lifestyle, the outdoors with the camping and the rendezvous. That's really, that's really unique. I, I uh, appreciate that on a number of levels. Dumb question. What 
muzzle loader shotgun what do you mm-hmm. what do you recall about loading like the shot in there like is there a what do you put in there like a shot cup do you just pour a bunch of bbs down the I, I'm, I'm only when i think muzzle loader i only think of like jamming one bullet down there but how do you do yeah. bird shot so um there are more primitive ways to do it sure. and then there are um what we actually use we cheated and used shot cups so okay. it's actually a like reloading 12 gauge shot cups you would put in there to kind of help. Yeah. And, but you would do powder and then you would put a small paper wad and then a shot cup, pour shot, and then another belt basically pad in there too. Yep. Over to the top. Yep. Okay. So that makes sense. Modernizes it to a little bit of an extent, but at the same time it's, I mean, still slow. Was that so. the was that the only bird you you killed with a muzzle loader, or have you done it again? No, I I have moved on from that. <laughs> so it was by necessity only at that point in time. And um, I mean, I could do it, but the amount of stuff you have to haul and walk through the field with, and right, yeah, you got to ah, be you got to be focusing on the, you got to be focusing on the dogs. You know, you, you don't have time for that, right? Well, not at this point. Maybe someday I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny though. I I don't know that I've that I've heard of anybody's first bird with a muzzle loader like that. That's cool. The smoke clearing and everything. <laughs> it was cool. Um, then the big progression you ask, like, how did I get yeah. to full time dogs? Is I got that first dog, and and I've kind of always had the mindset that anything I want to do, I set my mind to it, and I'll get there. Right? Like if you enough, uh, time, effort, energy, put in research, all these things, I could do anything. And, you know, probably part of the way that my parents raised me, but I found out pretty quickly that I knew nothing about bird dogs and researched as much as I could and ended up working for a kennel in Minnesota. Actually, we moved from North Dakota down to Minnesota. You probably heard of Willow Creek Kennels. Yes. Maybe? Yeah. I had forgot about, yeah, I think Nick Adair, told me about that and I forgot about that. You worked with Chad. Okay. Yep. So I worked there for about three years and then actually got the opportunity. I get a phone call from my uncle and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm buying uh, grocery stores. This is the uncle that bird hunted and everything else. And since I got into bird dogs on my own, I've gone down and hunted with him a ton. And he's like, Hey, I'm buying a new grocery store and I need somebody to come and manage. Is this something you'd be interested in? And it was an offer of a lot more money than what I was making training dogs. Yeah. So I took that and moved down there and then got an overwhelming number of people basically that followed us. And we went um, from grocery store manager for a short period of time to back to full-time bird dogs. And that's when Standing Stone Kennel started. Uh, what year was that? 2012. 2012. Okay. Wow. That's cool. So that's how you wound up in Kansas. The, it was a the grocery store move and then, and then the dog training followed. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I, I didn't know that story. Um, and yeah, I forgot that you were up in Minnesota for a time with a, with a pretty well-known kennel. I know a couple of guys that have, have dogs from, from there as well, but that's a neat story. And, and now of course, Standing Stone has, has certainly come a long way. What, what makes up Standing Stone kennels today, as far as like dogs education training videos like what's the how does the pie layout if that makes sense to you sure so the the biggest pieces i guess yeah um are broken a, a few different ways first of all we do what everybody know or some people know um we train dogs 
we train any any dogs that come through, but primarily focus on versatile, family-oriented gun dogs. Okay. We rarely get just kennel dogs in. It's mostly dogs that are learning obedience work as well as how to be bird dogs. Um, we breed German Shorthair Pointers, and that has been you know kind of our passion from the very beginning. We're rolling on 15 years in Shorthairs, and um, have come a long way in kind of shifting what I can I specifically want to see out of bird dogs from a family oriented versatile companion and in that order you know we've got a few dogs we need livability we need part of our family and that's that's changed even more now that we have two little boys I mean we need dogs that can be respectful we need dogs that can interact politely with them and that's a weird thing to say it's like oh it's just training well there are some dogs that are just naturally good around the boys and some dogs are just bull and china shop they just run through and knock everything down right, right and right. how old are your boys so, um yeah, four <laughs> and uh four and one and a half gosh so, uh, that's like exactly the same as my two that's funny <laughs> really yeah that's awesome yeah yeah you have you have two boys two boys yeah yeah hunter he'll be five in april and then jack is like a year and a half so <laughs> right about where you're at buddy yeah, so we're just maybe even just a few months behind you because um, Aiden, our oldest, will be five in November. Okay. So he just turned four, not well, almost not too long ago. But yeah. And then Cade will be, the youngest will be two in May. So okay. We're pretty yeah. close. Yeah, very close. That's cool. They are uh, they're loving it. And I feel like on average they kind of <laughs> take for granted the dogs, you know, it's uh, in, in a sense, right? You know, it's. They kind of been some, around them a lot. Yeah, it's yeah. just second nature. We've got dogs around, so yeah. Isn't they know no different? I, and this will be, uh, you know, just sort of kid related stuff. But just the the things that they become interested in, sort of like you know, some things they're exposed to, of course. But then some things kind of come out of left field. Like I, my my older one, he just he's obsessed with trucks, and that's. I mean, I like a truck as much as the next guy, but I'm not like into every kind of construction vehicle and that's that's his thing. And I will say our our younger one, he is he's really interested in the dogs and he loves he loves watching the dogs run around the yard, which I mean, I think you know what kid doesn't for a little while, but he seems to showing like extra interest in it and I'll take him out on walks in the pack and he loves watching the dogs run and stuff and it it's cool to see, but I just I find it really interesting how they sort of attached to certain things. I don't know if you've noticed any of that in your boys. Oh, absolutely. Where do the interests come from? It doesn't, you right. know, cause they definitely aren't my interests. Like you're talking about yeah. it's, uh, Aiden was very much the same way. It's interesting you say that, but it's, uh, construction stuff, trucks, <laughs> um, excavators, <Yep. laughs> dozers, like he's all about it. Right. And Cade loves cows. <laughs> That is his thing. I mean, every he points them out everywhere. He, cows, moo, you know. I yeah, guess. Yeah. Like, why? Why cows? Right. But it's <laughs> every book, every picture, everywhere we're traveling. That is the main important thing that he can find is a cow. Yeah. So it's amazing what that what that young focus and attention can do. Yeah. Jack's Jack's likes dogs and horses as well. So um, yeah, it sounds like our, our boys would get along pretty well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we'll save that for a, we'll save that for another day, but okay. Back to Ethan a little bit. 
I, I did want to. I didn't want to miss this. Your your first dog, Ethan and Cat. Your first dog was a short hair. Mm-hmm. Was it was it Crazy Sammy? Yep. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Crazy Sammy. How did you How did you decide on a short hair? Interestingly enough, it was a it was a big recommendation from a guy that I was fixing his computer. So ah. in college, yep, I worked for the Geek Squad. Drive okay. the Volkswagen bug around, fix people's computers, and that's how I paid my way through. Um, the portion of college that I attended, the, um, he said, you're looking for a bird dog. I think you should get a short hair. And he himself was a, a pointer breeder, ran walking trials or did something to that nature. And, okay. um, but I started looking, looked at pictures, fell in love. They're just strikingly gorgeous dogs. And I don't think, you know, very many people would argue with that, whether the short hair is the right dog for them or not. I think most people would say short hairs are pretty. Um, or yep. most of them are. Yep. So we started looking that way and uh, found a litter of short hairs that were posted in the newspaper. And I did absolutely everything that we recommend you don't do, right? Like that's... <laughs> that's what I want to get into. Most, <laughs> yes. Speaking from experience only is a term that I use on a regular basis. And it's because I've already done this and screwed it up. So don't follow suit, folks. Yeah. Um, we went out there and I told Kat sitting in the car, I remember this vividly. I said, if the puppy doesn't have these specific markings and blah, 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 we're not getting it. Right. And we show up and it was a cute puppy, you know, as all puppies are. And I was like, yeah, let's fine. Let's get it. Right. And no research put in, no information, no background on parents, no health testing, no relationship built with this lady that we found in the newspaper and she tried to give us a two for one because the other puppy was blind in one eye. Oh my so gosh. yeah, it, I mean, it, it was the epitome of not the way that I would recommend that you look into getting a dog. So, and we paid dearly for it. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a lot of work. Now, um, granted we also learned a lot from mm-hmm. that situation. So, in essence, had I got something that was better, I probably wouldn't have learned as many things that way, school of hard knocks, right? right. But um, at the same time, uh, we found her a new home as we progressed. Like, I, I sold my first dog ever, which is, it was hard, but um, there was a gentleman that was looking for a dog, and we had minimal space, and I was like, I already see the direction I want to go with this, which is building better dogs, and... So I'm going to find the right home for, for this dog to go and be a bird dog. Yeah. And I think she just passed away in the last couple of weeks. So oh, wow. very old. Yeah, very old and lived a long life. They sent us pictures all the time, but, um, you know, it was the right place for her. Yeah. So, so going back to that, like however much we, we want to get into it, but what do you, does anything stand out for you? Like, well, let me start with here. What mistakes do you recall that you made that you would say 100%, you know, again, you didn't know at the time, but 100%, yeah, did that wrong or or needed to change this going forward? Anything jump out at you? Uh, first of all, buying her yeah, um, right. broke every rule, right, in looking for a healthy upcoming dog, which granted she lived a long life and did all the things, but yeah. from a confirmation build structure standpoint, she was, like, awful. The epitome of, I talk, I love you, little dog, but. Um, you were very poorly put together, which in the grand scheme of dogs, that helps prevent breakdown or so they say. Yeah. Um, but then as far as training and development goes, um, we utilize exercise 
as our primary focus in wearing her out. And we often talk about now that there are two very important parts of working with a dog, and that's mental and physical stimulation. Um, we say them in that order because of the level of importance. Mental stimulation is more important than physical stimulation. And though both are needed, if you work solely off of exercise, which is what the average person does, yeah. you build a machine. And today, an hour wears them out. Tomorrow, two hours. The next week, four hours. After that, it's eight hours. And you have a dog that basically you can run all you want and they're never actually tired. And instead of putting emphasis on Let's challenge your mind and, and build off of how to be more obedient and focused and structured in a sense of these are our expectations within the house and the family. That mental stimulation and focus is going to develop you the dog that you want at a drastically younger age. There is no uh, year old, still just a lot of puppy in a year and a half old. Oh, it's still just puppy two years old. Oh, it's just still a lot of puppy left in it. No, it's just a, a dog that hasn't been pushed to the level um, that it could be mm. from a mental development and structure and obedience standpoint. Like we can ask and expect more out of our dogs that doesn't just involve running. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter, imported from Italy, and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That's cool. I want to I get into that a little bit. I guess let's just let's jump in here because that's something I've thought about and I would say put me firmly in the category of somebody that pretty much leans on exercise mm-hmm. and my dogs have the... You know, I'm pretty good about getting them out for daily runs. We get in the we get in the woods and we're doing off leash runs, and I know the dogs love that and they enjoy that, and they have the off switch when we come home. So there's not a there's not a whole lot else going on that I feel like I need, but I do know that I've got two smart bird dogs here, and I can tell, especially the younger one, she needs a little bit more stimulation at home. What what are the some of the basic foundational things that that you get into when it comes to the mental stimulation outside of just purely exercising. So first and foremost, don't misunderstand. 
mental and physical stimulation are required. Correct. But we need to lean more heavily on the mental aspect of things. And when you take your dog for a free run or just off-leash running, that requires almost non-existent, almost non-existent excuse me, mental focus. Mm-hmm. They're doing what they want. It doesn't challenge them. Think about mental focus like um, a, well, we were talking about pheasant fest, right? We're going to be up there. Yeah. That is extremely mentally taxing. You spend eight to 10 hours talking to people, interacting, having conversations, meeting people, learning, thinking, whatever. At the end of that day, I'm shot. Yeah. Like I'm ready to just crash. And that I didn't run anywhere. I didn't, you know, do anything other than challenge my brain. So we have to kind of think about that process. So how can we apply that to dogs? It would be, let's do an obedience session, but let's add a new level of challenge to that with young dogs. The first thing that we typically move into is place training. And then once, so we'll, we'll break this down here. So the way that we teach dogs, we have uh, basically a three part process. We teach, which we utilize positive reinforcement only to teach new behaviors. Then we differentiate. Differentiation is broken into two parts. That's differentiating between cues and differentiating between where we're doing this training session. So dogs are placed and situationally oriented. So if you normally do a training session in your kitchen, per se, or your garage or or wherever your normal place is, dogs understand, hey, it's time to train. I'm going to do this short little session here. And they're very obedient for that. You step out of that environment and now they're like, man, I know nothing. Right. So we have to move those training sessions around. And that's a a small baby step in the direction of I can listen everywhere. Then the last is proofing. Proofing, we move into collar conditioning and uh, we don't teach with an e-collar. We just utilize it to build consistency and reinforce something that the dog already knows. So let's take a young dog. We can challenge them. Because they now, uh, we've, they've gone through the process. They've started collar conditioning to stay on a dog bed for place training. Yep. Now we can challenge them by building on time and adding distractions. Your two little boys running around playing in the evening. The young dog is laying on a dog bed expected to stay there through that high level of distraction. Now, the kids have to be respectful too. They can't go pester right. the puppy and make it unfair. But at the same time, that is a mental challenge. Like I have to stay here. I have to think about staying here. Not only does that challenge them mentally, but it also builds a really good behavior of I can stay on a dog bed through high levels of distractions, which ultimately will eliminate most of the behavioral issues that people talk about um, around the house. For example, counter surfing or getting in the garbage or jumping on people when they come over to the house, mm-hmm. a dog that will just go and lay down on a dog bed it basically eliminates all of those things from being options. And then um, once the excitement comes down from whatever the transitional period is, transitions are where you're going to struggle the most. Um, people just coming home, new people coming over. Yep. You've, you know, that transition period is what's exciting. I get excited when people come over to my house, you know, everybody's chit chatting and, you know, it, it's that instant first few minutes till things kind of settle out. But then once, that transition settles, then the dogs can be part of everything, but you've eliminated the opportunity for them to get excited and jump and build this or condition this behavior of being naughty in that transition period. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Place training is is in place, I guess pun intended there, so that yeah. you when you know you've got a transition period coming, you would you would put the dog in its place, get them through that until people are home, settled in, and then the dogs are are kind of through that that easy time where they would they would normally potentially exhibit some of those behaviors we don't want. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So it's uh that's a good mental um a mental exhaustor or a mental yeah. challenge yeah. for a dog. Um the other side of it is uh we explain it you've heard an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. Yes. Right? Yep. So if we prevent them from learning as young puppies that all of these naughty things are options, they don't typically have those issues through development mm-hmm. and you move out of them faster through development and it, it makes you feel almost like you're a uh, puppy Nazi or, you know, you're the, <laughs> you, you're, you're the fun sucker or what, sure, whatever it is. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I mean, they structure is what dogs thrive off of. So the more structure we can apply in their life as young dogs, the happier they are, the more content they are, and the more, um, you know, mentally they are prepared for, for life in general. Yeah, uh, I, lo- I love that. And it, it's, I think people out there listening will, if you've had a dog or two, you'll you'll be nodding your heads. This stuff becomes so clear after, like Ethan and myself, you mess it up a time or two, right? Like my wife and I still laugh about our first dog, you know, I would come home from, I was, I had an office job at the time. I'd come home from work and, and my wife would be working from home and the pup Hartley was there with her and I'd come home in the door and I'd crouch down and like would create and inject all this excitement, enthusiasm. Cause I was just excited to come home and see my first bird dog. And he still is, he's, he's a great dog and he's got an off switch, but he, that excitability that I built into him has, you know, it, it, I saw how that played out through his life. And I definitely worked to change that with my other dog successfully in, in some ways. Um, but it just, again, some of that stuff becomes so clear to you after you, you go through it for the first dog or two. Yes. One hundred percent. Like I say, speaking from experience only, it's something I've already done and screwed up. You are, you are spot on, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, you'll, it's people will, you'll, you'll know, you appreciate a calm, calm, collected dog around the house after you've, after you've been through that. And, you know, some of that stuff, as much information and, and help out there, like, like you and Kat are providing, um, it's just, sometimes you just gotta, you gotta trials and tribulations learn the hard way, but it's nice to know that, that there are things that people can turn to and resources. And, and I want to talk a little bit about place training, just using that as an example. I mean, we could go on and on about some of the stuff and the exercises and the drills, and you guys have a lot of resources for that, but let's use place training as an example. Cause that, I feel like that's one that, it doesn't always come up with pointing dogs and and I'd like to talk about some of the benefits and things that that you see in it, why you do it, why you incorporate it with with I'm assuming all bird dogs essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is great. You asked before how the pie is broken out and it's kind of cool. We do the the training here on site and the breeding program, but then I mean, it's about 50, 50, almost becoming more now into the education portion. We have our YouTube channel. We have an online um, dog training community set up through Patreon. We use that to communicate with people on the daily. Like you have questions about training, things aren't going well. 
I review videos. We set up um, one-on-one calls and we can watch your training session as it's happening to help give you direction. Um, but then we also have an online course and an online supply store. So that is the other yeah. the half of Standing Stone. And that includes, um, you know, all of the things from education to supplying you with all the things that you need to raise and develop and train your own bird dog yourself. So in our program, place training is huge. And that's for bird dogs, exactly what you're saying. And it's, I feel like on average, it's an understanding that we don't need to do as much obedience work with pointing dogs. I feel like that comes from, or versatile dogs, I feel like that comes from older understandings of what the dogs were. If you think back, mm, maybe into the 20-year category, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of coming out of it right as we got into bird dogs that they could be more family-oriented. Yeah. You know, yep. I think re- retrievers were known, Labradors, Black Labs, or whatever you want to say, have been family pets for a long time, right? Um, but bird dogs, you keep them in the pen out back and that's the only way that they'll make good bird dogs. And, you know, we obviously know now that that's not the case. Right. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I think I I would certainly agree with you in that I came to this, you know, within the last 10 years or so. So even, even shorter timeframe than you, but like that sentiment is very clear that, that they weren't always thought of as family and pet dogs and, and that has been shifting and it's very apparent in some of the, whether it's the books or magazines or whatever it is, but you can, you can definitely pick up on that. 100%. So as being part of the family, the dogs need to be good citizens mm-hmm. and that involves obedience. Um, we try and find easy ways to help develop dogs to be good citizens and be part of the house and not be crazy because they are a higher energy animal. Versatile dogs are, yeah. um, they're bred to run and they're bred to do those, do it independently while cooperatively, but still independently. And that independent nature often um, comes across with a young puppy as <laughs> busy and into things and everything yeah. else. So um, drawing a clear line, I think this is uh, my mother always laughs when I use this example. Um, I explain Often she sat through a handful of seminars and talks and different things that I do. And she's like, she didn't draw the conclusion until she'd listen. And she's like, wow, that's how I raised you guys. I'm like, yes, that's how I based (laughs) most of our our dog training is uh, around how we were developed. Right. So if you want a rough house and you want to play and you want to do all of these things, that stuff needs to be taken outside. I had three other brothers. Um, Things got broken if we played too rough inside. So we apply that to dogs and the, the big difference with dogs is whatever you're doing, you're conditioning, right? So we often try and make sure that the things that we're doing on the daily or the, the things that we're allowing, um, are the things that we want. Yeah. And that involves calm interaction. And, uh, you can say you, you pet the, you get the dog, you pet and, we have to interact calmly. Like you talked about, you come home, you're excited. The dog's excited. You have this excitement. And even to this day, it sounded like you still struggle a smidgen with if, if he, she is still with you. Um, yeah, you struggle a little bit with that still as that was kind of 
what was developed with as a young dog, which is fine. But he's an excitable, um, easily excitable dog because of, and I think that was pretty much on me in the way that I that I developed him early. Sure, sure, and and we all learn as we go. But the being able to uh, basically ask for and see, ask ask for what you're looking for, and then reward what you're looking for with the attention and the affection that shows the dog that this is how we interact and and that sets the stage. So utilizing place training around your house, again, prevents um, a lot of bad habits from being able to form and develop Mm -hmm. through that, that state of a puppy being in its highest level of exploration. They're trying to learn everything in their environment and that's fine and dandy, but in the house, you know, ultimately we just need to be calm. That's it. Yeah, uh, easy to see, you know, a pup, puppy's got short attention spans, and if they are not in a place, not in their crate, I mean, they're going to follow that short attention span wherever it leads them, and, and like you said, they're exploring. So by putting place training in place, I keep saying that, it's bothering me, <laughs> the obvious pun there, but it's uh, it's your, you're not only taking some of that opportunity away from them for them to exhibit bad behaviors or whatever you want to call it but you're also going back to what you talked about as far as like giving them mental stimulation and you're putting them through it so it's a it's a win-win really there but it just it takes a little bit of intention and thoughtful process on the part of the handler and owner it really does i drew this uh conclusion after buying a trained dog Mm. um she was five and had lived in a kennel run her whole life she knew nothing of house training. She knew nothing of being part of the family. She was just a bird dog and a nice one, but just a bird dog. So we brought her in like we do all of our dogs and, and potty trained her. We often describe to people that are getting older dogs like that. It's been a question that comes up. What do we do? Well, we treat them like puppies, but they're way easier to potty train because their bladder control is exponentially sure. better. But still, just consistency, getting them in and out, gives them the opportunity to know, I don't go to the bathroom in here, I go outside. This house is my space, and I don't need to mess in it. So, if you're consistent, it happens pretty quick. Now, the cool thing about it was, once she was house trained, she's one of the easiest dogs to have in the house and around. Now, she was older, but at the same time, she didn't know how to get into trouble, basically. She didn't understand what people food was. She didn't understand what the garbage was. She didn't understand how to look for people food on the counters because that wasn't a thing, mm. right? I, I'm not looking for these things because I've never learned or I've never been rewarded for doing such behavior. She didn't jump on the couch. She just, I mean, just didn't do any of the things that people are trying to teach their dogs not to right. because she didn't have the opportunity to learn that those were options. And it was, it was kind of eye-opening that, wow, if we just prevent some of these things from being options for our puppies, life in general could be easier um, as they mature. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a, that highlights a, it's probably one of the most important. It's this everyday stuff, these little things every day. And, and folks will have heard this, but like you said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's, it's that simple stuff. You just have to be intentional about how you go about your daily routines because dogs are so routine oriented habitual they they just get so ingrained to what happens every day so if you're if you're sloppy going through your day you're going to see that play out in the dogs and again it's not 
rocket science as far as like preventing some of this stuff and developing them, but it can be hard because life gets in the way and life gets busy. And, and it's just, how do you maintain that intention and that focus on, on developing behavior? I mean, do you find people, people just struggle with that sort of simple dynamic? I think that people's life in general is busy. Yeah. Right. I mean, we all, we all in that category and what ends up happening is it's, two things are applied. First and foremost, people feel bad about crate training Mm -hmm. because they apply human thoughts to the dog, right? I wouldn't want to be in this little box or or whatever when in fact the crate is a, is a safe place as well as a a safe haven, if you will, for your stuff. Um, And it's good for young dogs to develop a love for their space. and, And it's a natural thing for dogs to want um so then you say i'm not going to create them in these large periods of time but i also don't have time to be 100 percent focused on the young dog right so then they start doing their things and then as are all poor leaders which we've all fallen into this category at one point in time um being reactive versus proactive um yeah being proactive would be we're created and we're giving you hundred percent supervised time and we're doing training sessions and mental and physical exercise. And we've given you all the things you need. Now you can take some rest time in a crate and we've done all of this reactive is just, Oh, you peed on the floor. When did that happen? Now I'll have to discipline you or change or do something right. Or, Oh, you just chewed up the edge of the couch or you know, any of these things. And then, that you didn't even recognize a hundred percent happened. And now you're having to react to those yep. not ideal. So we have to try and be uh, proactive. I love the word that you used intentional. We often describe to people that there are three things to become a better dog trainer that you have to have. And um, everybody that has a young dog that's working with them at home or listening to this and, and hoping to plan on working with a new puppy or whatever it is, your dog trainers. In order to move out of that category of dog trainer into professional dog trainer, you have to have people start paying you. So don't, don't act like you're not dog trainers, folks. Um, but you need three things. It's, you need to be honest. You need to be aware. You need to be intentional. Mm. Big one that you mentioned. So honesty comes down to anticipation. Dogs are really good at recognizing patterns yep. and anticipating what you're going to do or what you're going to ask them. We get into habits. Like I go here, I grab the food, I go to the door, I open the door. The dog anticipates the next thing I'm going to do is go out the door. So they bust through or, you know, different things happen. Yep. So, or you start asking for things and they pick up on body language that you kind of use leading up to what you're going to ask. So you need to be honest about what you're asking of your dog. Are they doing what you're asking or are they anticipating what they think you're going to ask them to do? With bird dogs, we see all the time people say, whoa, and their dog sits down and they say, good dog. When, you know, that's, that kind of falls into that category of dogs anticipating something next or anticipating what they think you want them to do. And there's some level of confusion and miscommunication there. So be honest with yourself about what did I ask and what did the dog do? And if you can, if you can do that, it's going to make you a better, better dog trainer. Excuse me. The next thing would be awareness. Um, patterns happen when something is, when you, it shows up two or more times. So if you see a dog do something 
and then do it again, you need to ask yourself this question. Is that something I'm okay with? Or is it something I want to get ahead of now and prevent it from becoming a problem mm. down the road? Yeah. Um, that's awareness. And then the last is intentional. Come with a plan to every training session. Like you were saying, be intentional about what your expectation is and what your goals are and, and what you're going to take to you know, bring to the table. I want to work on this specific thing now. And if you have a plan and a direction and you're intentional about what you're trying to do, you know, if you slide one direction or the other, at least you're, you're better prepared for where you were going. Not just, Oh, we're training now. Right. Well, what are we going to do? I don't know. It's just training time. So those would be the three big ones and and intentional being huge. Yeah, that's good. That's great foundational stuff. And I think something else you hit on that dynamic between being proactive and react, you know, if you can be honest with yourself and say, Hey, am I, am I being intentionally proactive here or am I reacting to a situation or a behavior that's probably going to answer a lot of questions for you as a handler and at least help you move forward in that case. Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. What, so beyond these, these foundational things, um, just, thinking ahead and we're, we're, we're going to wrap up here pretty quick, but knowing that it's spring and, and we've got puppies coming and, and we could get into a lot of stuff here, but I just want to know, like, what are some of the, knowing that the education side is becoming huge for you and growing a lot. What are the biggest things that you think people struggle with common questions? And, and I don't know if we, if we're focusing on sort of first time bird dog owners, I mean, do you feel like, are you hearing from a lot of people that are first time, bird dog owners? I would imagine so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Probably more first time bird dog owners than repeat bird dog owners. Yeah. Um, most of the time when people are, are repeats, like they, they've got a, a general feel of the direction they want to go or, mm-hmm. or someone to work with or something to that effect. But first timers are looking for help. Yes. And when you've got that, uh, young versatile dog, whether it be a, a short hair or another breed, um, you know, the biggest thing that I could recommend to you at this point would be we have a complete online training course that gives you step by step from eight weeks till ready to hunt the dog. We put a, a general number of 12 months on there, but it's at standingstonesupply.com slash courses. And it breaks down a little bit different than what a typical training course would. Um, I feel like on average, training is is broken down into a linear process like step one, step two, step three. And it's not really the way that dog training works. Um, so we broke it into like training goals and environmental goals. So for like socialization and things like that, that you should be working on at the same time. Yeah. And then additional tasks, things like nail trimming and whatever should be happening in that week, which is more than just, here's a training session. Okay, well, that's great. Now, what do I do for the rest of the uh, 23 hours of the day right. um, with this puppy and how does that look? So that's what we put together is the, is the best resource that we have for folks that are new, that are getting a puppy um, soon or just have one. You can apply uh, this course to that. It comes with a checklist. Like, does my dog know this, 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 start at week, wherever. Um, so you, you've got as many pieces as we could find to make the process easy because it should be fun, should be enjoyable. And um, ultimately, if you still struggle working through that, we have a 
support system, either via subscription or one-off calls that you can set up that every single day, Kat and I have calls with people talking about where they're at in the process and kind of how to break down what their individual struggles are. Got it. Speaking of Pheasant Fest, we brought that up earlier and you you mentioned socialization that I, I never really did much of this, like br- bring my dog to Home Depot or a big store or, or like, so just thinking about that, like, is that a, bringing your dog to say Pheasant Fest, because that's, bird dogs are obviously welcome there and a lot of folks do it. Um, how do you think about that as far as helping the dog? Is that, a, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? And how would you go about preparing the dog or preparing yourself or bringing them to a big event like that with tons and tons of people? So here's a little bit of a controversial topic. Um, I would say that the average person's mind goes to socialization requires interaction with lots of people and or small children. Like my puppy needs to come and meet all of these people and do all of these things as well as the average person. And (laughs) Ethan's a brutally honest comment. So I apologize, but the average person feels it's their God given right to come and pet any dog that they see. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's, it's not the case. Okay. Um, so what we recommend is to kind of look at it more the direction of the way that a service dog would be developed. Okay. So if anybody's ever been around a true service dog, I would say that most people would agree that they are very well socialized, Mm. but from a very early age, no one interacts with them when they go anywhere, right? They have service dog best on, service dog in training, leave this dog be, right? Right. That's a, a respect thing. It's pretty well known. I think that that one is, is, is taken well and, yeah. and is respected by the public. So um, those dogs don't get pet. They don't get to interact with every person they meet and yet are probably in the highest tier of properly socialized right. and developed. Yeah. So people aren't letting their kids you, run up to that thing and get in its face you know, un- unwell. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because people are the problem with developing a dog that has bad issues with interacting properly with people. Yeah. Um, you know, the dog comes up, jumps all over them cause they're puppies and people are all excited and they're like, it's okay. I'm a dog person. And it's like, no, what you're teaching is anytime my puppy meets somebody new, they can interact improperly. So a lot of those kind of things are going to happen at an event like doesn't fail. Now, if you can go, bring your dog, you're going to want to make sure that they have leash manners and are properly vaccinated. This is an area where a young dog could get sick. And I don't know what their cutoff is with the age limit of what dogs can go to pheasant fest, but make sure that your dog's properly vaccinated. You'd hate to like, here's a great socialization event. And then it come home with parvo or something weird like that, um, which would be very possible. Um, But then, after that point, if your dog's good on leash, taking them, but go and be, um, I'm, I'm cheering you on here. Go and be the dog Nazi. Like, no, I'm, I'm working on developing proper behavior. My dog is here to get used to an environment that's got a high level of distraction, but doesn't need to interact with every dog and every person. None of those things are necessary. So try and kind of keep to yourself and then monitor your individual dog while you're there. Do they look mentally stressed? That's where you're going to see those, those eyes look almost glazed over. You've pushed to the point of they need a break. Okay. So a small loop through, put them up and, and life should be fine. Right. If you're, if you're planning on keeping them in the event as a young dog all day long, 
that's going to be a lot to ask. Now, um, I would say on average, stress is a requirement of growth, but too much stress causes breakage and breakage takes a long time to fix. So small interactions are good. Just make that judgment call based off of the age of the dog and, and reading them. Do they seem still happy to be there? If so, great. If they don't, then maybe it's time to move on. Yeah, I feel like a a, a pretty well-known and recurring theme in dog development and training, less is more, is, is often said and I think applies in a lot of areas. Would you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Well, yeah, like you said, I mean, after an eight-hour day at Pheasant Fest, you and I are going to be uh, worn out. So I can only imagine what uh, what that does to the dogs. But, uh, yeah, that's that's good, good helpful insight. Um, one other thing I did want to ask you about, we talked about it earlier, and it somewhat applies here, but you said the word calm. And, and I just think for me, I don't know if this is a personal preference or not, but I, I imagine most people respect and appreciate a calm and composed dog. And I think that's a little thing that I think goes a long way in developing uh, a bird dog that people look at and say, wow, that's a, again, calm, composed dog. How do you think about being calm and developing a calmness within bird dogs? So two parts to it. Every dog is genetically made up to be something. And they're predisposed to follow that path. Um, so if you have a dog that is amped or wired to the max, it's going to take more work for you to mm. kind of pull them into that calm state of mind where dogs that we breed and develop, it's like I explained in the beginning, it's a huge part of our thought process that goes into dogs that we are breeding. Um, livability, temperament, personality are huge. So, um, if you have a dog that's predisposed to be a more on the the calm, cool, collected side, it's going to be easier for you. Now, that path, I would say that on average, dogs take the path of least resistance. They're they're going to be what they're going to be, and it takes a lot, positively or negatively, to steer them from that path. So, if you've got a dog that's calm. It's going to take a lot for you to move them off of the calm pattern. Mm. And if you've got a dog that's amped, it's going to take a lot for you to move them off of the amped pattern. Um, so keep those things in mind. But consistency, I think this is probably pretty well beat up in the, yeah. the dog <laughs> communication category. But consistency is going to be your best friend here. Um, take the time while they're young to have consistent expectations of calm interactions. And like I said, at Pheasant Fest, that's a great place to be and just have them be able to, you know, kind of watch what's happening, um, but not to be interacted with. And it's going to go a long way in developing. I don't need attention from everything. Yeah. But then on your day in and day out interactions with your dog, you need to show them what the expectation is as well. So I'm going to interact calmly with you and I kind of am looking for the same in return and when you lay clear expectations and you're consistent with them, uh, the dogs are going to fall right in line with what you're looking for. Yeah. I think that's, I, without actually asking it, that was one of the questions I was, I was kind of getting at there. Just from my own mind, I was wondering how much of that calm disposition is built into the dog genetically and then how much do we nurture you know nature versus nurture and sure. you know i think and again i i look at the differences between my i think both of them are fairly calm i mean they're both lying here sleeping here listening to us uh 
chatter away here, but um, I injected a little bit of excitability into Hartley. And with his younger sister, I was way more intentional and focused on being calm and encouraging that. And it's, it's clear how they've, how they've turned out. Now, unfortunately for me, they're, they're both good dogs, but um, yeah, that's the, that's the thing we're all trying to accomplish as dog trainers is, is developing what we want and things slip through the cracks and get lost and that's life and that's dog training, but we can all try to be better tomorrow, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool, man. Well, Hey, I, I mean, there's, there's so many things we could talk about. It was, it was fun getting to know you a little bit and sharing a little bit more about standing stone kennels on, on the podcast. And we'll have to get you back on the show at some point. I am looking forward to meeting you at pheasant fest. I think we covered it standing stone That's the hub. That's the HQ for everything standing stone. Anything else you would point people to? I mean, that's the biggest thing. See, you can get to everything we do on social as well as our online supply store and courses and, and uh, dog training community on Patreon there. All of it's, all of it's there linked at standingstonekennels.com. Awesome. Now, I know there's a lot of stuff between now and next hunting season, but I got to ask you, are there any, other than getting after some Hungarian partridge next fall, are there any hunts or anything you're looking forward to already next hunting season? And I've got in the, the forefront of my mind an attempt to chase the king of the upland birds, as we all refer to them as the rough grouse and oh boy and woodcock. So it's it's on the it's on the list. I don't know <laughs> if it'll 100 percent happen, but that's it's part of the goal for this coming year. I love it. I love it. That would be cool. And uh, like you, I've got uh, I've got my eyes set on some other species as well. Uh, we can all dream, right, Ethan? A hundred percent. If you're looking for prairie chickens, let me know. That's kind of a, a prairie grouse category that a lot of people miss. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Uh, I know you and you and Adair connected earlier this fall, and he told me all about it when he was up at up at my cabin in Wisconsin. So we'll uh, we'll have to keep in touch. I would like to make that make that happen and maybe pay you a visit. That'd be fun. Sounds good to me. All right, man. Hang on here for just a second. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. We'll catch everybody on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.